I'll be honest with you. I'm going to struggle through this sermon tonight. This is one of the most profound texts in the Bible, if not the most profound. And it hits hard. It hits, it hits really hard. It could be argued that the most recognizable symbol in the history of the world is the cross. All over the world, you will find the cross on hats, T-shirts, necklaces, paintings, tombstones, earrings, architecture, churches, etc., etc. But what exactly is the cross? As widely recognizable as the cross is, I would say very few really know its true meaning. But Paul does. Paul does. And we're going to look at a passage tonight from Paul where he explains the meaning of the cross. In John Stott's book called The Cross of Christ, he writes about our text tonight. Quote, these verses constitute one of the clearest expositions of the, necess the necessity, meaning, and consequences of the cross. Paul expresses himself in such stark terms that some commentators have not been able to accept what he writes. A.W. Blunt, for example, writes that the language here is startling, almost shocking. We should not have dared to use it. But Paul means every word of it. So we have to come to terms with it. End quote. Okay. So let's try to come to terms with it. Our text tonight is Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Galatians chapter 3. 10 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Galatia. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith 
we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I am nothing. And your Son is everything. Please, help me preach your Son. Help me. Help me preach your Son. So that he might receive the glory and the honor and the praise that he deserves. This is in his name we pray. Amen. So this text shows us three things. Number one, it shows us the necessity of the cross. The necessity of the cross. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, last week we focused on God's promise to Abraham, right? We saw that, you know, it was always God's intention to extend Abraham's blessing to the entire world. But the biblical story doesn't simply go from Abraham in Genesis 12 straight to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. A lot happens in between. And in between there, that story is the story of the people of Israel, Abraham's direct descendants. That's what the Old Testament is. It is a rich and beautiful story. But it is also a sad one. It's a story of constant rebellion and sin. Which leads Israel smack dab into humanity's biggest stumbling block. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The problem that Israel and you and me run into is God's moral law. As verse 10 shows the law brings about a curse on everyone who doesn't do everything in it. You see, it's not enough to keep five out of ten commandments. It's not enough to keep eight out of ten. It's not enough to keep nine out of ten. All the commandments must be kept all the time without wavering on a single one ever. That is the standard of conduct that is required. And this was Jesus' point to the rich young ruler. If you don't know the story, during Jesus' ministry, a rich young man came up to Jesus and he asked him what he needed to do to have eternal life. And Jesus, understanding the man's heart and the spirit of his question, said, Well, that's easy. 
All you have to do is keep all the commands. And the naive young ruler said, uh, okay, well, I do all those. I already do that. And Jesus said, really? Well, if that's the case, then it should be easy for you to sell all of your possessions, to give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. And then the rich young ruler went away sad, for he had many, many possessions. So what was Jesus' point? Jesus knew the young man had made an idol out of his money. Money was what gave this man purpose and value. But don't you see? That's breaking the first commandment. You shall have no gods other than me. But the rich young ruler's God was money. So far from keeping all the commandments, the rich young ruler couldn't even get past the first one. He couldn't get past the first one. But that's the problem for all of us. It's really hard to get past that first one. And we can't just give the law the old college try. We must keep everything in it if we want to enter God's kingdom. If you want a relationship with a perfect God, you yourself must be perfect. Notice that Paul makes his argument straight from Scripture. Verse 10 is a quote, right? It's a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. And Paul goes on to really hammer home his point in the next two verses with two more pithy statements and two more Old Testament citations. Let's look at verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. No one who relies on the law is justified before God. No one. Why can't God's blessing be found in the law? Because as Paul says in verse 12, the law is not based on faith. It's based on works. It says the person who does these things will live by them. And by implication, the person who does not do these things will die by them. In order for the law to bless, the law must be kept. But this is where Israel failed. She did not keep the law, not even close. 
If she would have, as Leviticus 18.5 says, then she would have found blessing and life through the law. But she didn't. So she received the curse of the law and thus death through the law instead. That's Paul's main point in these three verses. Israel is under the curse of the law. But so is anyone who thinks that obedience to the law is the pathway to God. And this is the necessity of the cross. You see, without the cross, all humanity has is the law. That's all we have. And the law can bring us nothing but damnation. What we learn then from the entire Old Testament, as well as this passage, is that God has posted a giant dead-end sign over the law. Only death is found here. The law cannot give life. The law of God will only stir up. It will only stir up the sin within you, ultimately choking you to death. Like Paul said back in verse 1 a few weeks ago, what foolishness it is then to try and sail the ship of morality all the way to heaven. What foolishness. It's been tried a zillion times. And it's never worked once. Just ask the rich young ruler. Unfortunately, many people think that's what Christianity is. Right? Conformity to the rules. Don't drink or chew or run with girls who do. That's Christianity. And that's why so many reject it outright or they try it for a little while and say, heck with it. So many people have tried moral reform, allegiance to the Christian causes, and even church membership. They have even started voting Republican. And they found that none of it worked. None of it worked. That perverted version of Christianity put them in an iron cage with no way of escape. Which brings us to the second thing Paul shows us in this text which is the suffering of the cross. The suffering of the cross. Shut up in an iron cage with no way of escape. That's a good description of the life of behavior-based religion. It's also a good description of Israel in the Old Testament. The whole nation was essentially in prison to the law. Now, whether you consider Malachi or Nehemiah the last chronological book of the Old Testament, either way, the Old Testament ends in despair. 
in total despair. Thus, Israel sings in the words of a later hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. And hundreds of years later, in a lowly manger in Bethlehem, Emmanuel would come. He would come to set the captives free. That's my buddy over there. Emmanuel would come to set the captives free. But how? How would he do that? Now we come to the verse that so many commentators have trouble with. Many won't even admit that the verse says what it says. It's verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Notice, it doesn't say Jesus was cursed, does it? It says Jesus became a curse. He became a curse. Now, what could this mean? It means at least three things. At least three things. Number one, it means Jesus received real punishment from the Father. Jesus did not have an out-of-body experience from the cross. He felt everything. He took everything. Eyes and heart wide open. Number two, it means the punishment was worse than we can imagine. When you think of the word curse, what do you think of? When the Old Testament talks about curses, it's always within the context of relationship. Always. And the majority of the time when God promises to curse Israel for their sin, He means He is going to withdraw His presence from them. You might say, okay, so what? That doesn't sound like a very harsh curse to me. And you'd be wrong. This is the worst kind of curse there is. Even the staunchest atheist has never gone one second of his life without the common sustaining grace and presence of God. Not even for one second. God is all around us all the time whether we realize it or not. And so the absence of God's presence would be more horrific for us than we can even conceive. There's actually no way for us to conceive of it. 
But this would especially be the case for Jesus. You see, the level of pain involved in the loss of any relationship completely depends on the closeness of the two individuals. For example, when when an acquaintance says to you, I hate you, it hurts, it stings, but you can shrug it off. When a friend says, I hate you, that hurts far worse. That is difficult to shrug off. When a best friend says, I hate you, it's soul crushing. And when a spouse or a parent says, I hate you, It causes lifelong pain. But when you get to the relationship between God the Father and the Son, the closeness of their relationship is beyond our imagination. The Father and the Son have been in an intimate, loving relationship from all eternity. In Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon titled, The Agony of Christ, he asks, why did Jesus sweat blood in the garden? Why did he sweat blood? You think Jesus feared the Romans? (laughs) Give me a break. No. Jesus knew the wrath of Almighty God against sin was headed his way. And as Jesus in that garden turned to his Father for intimacy, and comfort. For the first time in eternity, the Father rejected him. Not only rejected him, he cursed him. Rather than finding love from his Father, he found a curse from his Father. And his father removed his loving presence from his son. And for Jesus, this was hell. This was hell. And you might push back here. You might say, well, yeah, but but Jesus knew in three days he would rise again. Well, now now wait just a minute. We already saw that Jesus experienced real punishment, which must mean this. The suffering Jesus experienced 
had to be equal to the punishment you and I would experience for eternity in hell. It had to be. For in order for Jesus to truly take our place, he had to suffer hell. He had to. And Tim Keller says that for Jesus to be cursed by his Father and to experience his wrath and to lose his intimate presence would have been a hell worse than all of our hells put together. And number three, this shows us that the punishment was our punishment. It was our punishment. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us. When Paul says Christ became a curse, he means that Christ was legally declared cursed by God and then was treated as such. He was treated as if he was Peter, the denier, as if he was Judas, the betrayer, as if he was Moses, the murderer, as if he was David, the adulterer. Why is this so profound? Why is this so important? Because Jesus didn't just take punishment from God on the cross. He took your punishment from God on the cross. And he took my punishment from God on the cross. It was my sin that put him there. It was your sin that put him there. And it was your curse. It was our curse that he became and that he endured. He became your curse in your place. And that brings us to our last point that Paul shows us. He shows us the blessing of the cross. Verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What is the blessing Jesus' death provides? The promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. The blessing is the very Spirit of the living God. And what does the Spirit bring? Freedom. It brings freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from the curse. Freedom from hell. And freedom from God's judgment and wrath. 
But how do we receive this freedom? How do we walk in this freedom? Many Christians seem to think they're living the Christian life on probation. Yeah, Jesus died to save me, but now I really got to watch myself and mind my P's and Q's or God will get me. No. God got Jesus. That's who he got. There is no more punishment left for you. All the punishment you deserve has already been poured out on the Father's Son. Which is why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are not on probation. You are free. You're free as a bird, whether you realize it or not. You're free. I realize a lot of you still walk around as if you have shackles on you, but you don't. That's a lie from the devil. There are no more shackles of sin and shame on you. All of those shackles were removed from you and put on Jesus. He was the one with the shackles, not you. You are free as a bird. There is nothing holding you back now. Other than the lies of the enemy, there's nothing holding you back. There's nothing keeping you from an intimate relationship with God now. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I guess the only thing left for you to do is rest in what Christ has done. I think that's the only thing left for you to do. That is what Jesus promised everyone who comes to him, right? Did he not promise rest? But to hear many Christians tell it, all Christ does is give us more burdens. All he does is give us more burdens. Everywhere we turn, we're being told we're not doing enough. So many sermons and social media posts, at least implicitly, tell us you don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You don't come to church enough. You don't serve enough. You don't give enough. You don't hate racism enough. You don't hate abortion enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my question is, when is enough enough? Right, like how much do I need to hate abortion before it's acceptable? How much do I need to read my Bible before it's acceptable? An hour a day? Two hours? Is it three? What about three and a half? 
Whose subjective standard of enough are we going by here? Who gets to decide when enough is enough? Because if we're going by Scripture, you remember, the standard of conduct required is perfection. It's perfection. It is obedience to the entire law. Anyone here meet that standard? Thankfully, Jesus met that standard. And he met that standard for us. And he is enough. He is enough. There's only one thing required of us now. Verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, we, we don't receive the Spirit because we hate racism more than our neighbor. Or because we come to church more than the other members. Because we put more in the offering plate. Or because we give more to hurricane relief. All that's needed from us is faith. Belief. That's it. Faith in the one who stood condemned in our place. What a shocking twist to the story of Scripture, right? The very one who declared the curse on sinners himself became the curse for us. <laughs> what a twist. He became the curse. For us, so that by faith we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Without Jesus, we are doomed we are damned before you and we know it we know it we can't keep all of the law we can't keep any of the law we're just like the rich young ruler we're no different we can't even get past the first one but your son did your son did and so we bow at his nail-scarred feet tonight, Father, in wonder of him and what he has done for us. He redeemed us, Father. He redeemed us.
sinners, rebels like us. I have redemption in the beautiful sacrifice of your son. Father, I pray that when, as we move forward and the enemy tries to point out all of our shackles and all the things weighing us down and all the sins holding us back, that you would bring us back to the cross. And we might gaze at our nail, at the nail-scarred hands and feet of our Savior and watch our shackles just melt away. Watch them just melt at the foot of the cross. Thank you for forgiveness in your son. Thank you for healing in your son. Thank you for restoration and renewal and mercy found in your son and what he has done for us. Father, it's in your precious Son's name that we pray. Amen.